Well, good morning again, everyone. Uh, the uh, voiceover there uh, in that um, uh, sort of propaganda video that's being uh, shown everywhere of Liam Neeson, he's actually done a, another one um, for Amnesty International, uh, where, uh, sponsored by uh, George Soros, I believe, the American billionaire, and it's a pro-abortion uh, video piece that's intended to convince people in Ireland that the laws against abortion are evil and wrong. Um, huge amount of funding has gone into this, and I was just showing actually the staff yesterday uh, this video because it, is, it begins with um, misty mountains in Ireland and then homes in on a dark, gloomy day on a ruined church and a collapsed cross and a a, a, a dreadful-looking graveyard, and he tells the listener or the viewer that uh, a dark, a dark evil is stalking Ireland and its past, um, that is uh, holding it back, and that they need to abandon that past. And uh, as he talks about the abandonment of that ruined past, the sun comes out, the old church disappears. It's a beautiful landscape, and then there comes up the caption concerning. Uh, the pro-choice uh, message. So these, uh, th these are pieces that are being seen by young people in the cinemas that look kind of funny and cute because it's animals, more like Animal Farm, but uh, it's animals. Um, and they're, they're, they sound so, everything seems so cuddly and warm, these global goals to fight inequality. Uh, well, we Christians at least have some idea what increasingly the idea of the world's idea of inequality and injustice means. So what I want to talk about uh, in this first session this morning is wisdom and government. Wisdom and government. I want to read to you from uh, the book of Isaiah, um, chapter 32, beginning at verse 6. Uh, through verse 8, as Isaiah, uh, in terms of speaking about the coming reign of righteousness, talks about fools and folly. He says this, For a fool speaks foolishness, and his mind plots iniquity. He lives in a godless way and speaks falsely about the Lord. He leaves the hungry empty and deprives the thirsty of drink. The scoundrel's weapons are destructive. He hatches plots to destroy the needy with lies, even when the poor says what is right. But a noble person plans noble things. He stands up for noble causes. What I want to do in this session, actually, is really contrast the things, the, uh, the themes that the Bible is concerned to contrast throughout wisdom and folly. The um, American lawyer, John Whitehead, he's an American civil rights attorney with a very long and distinguished career battling for freedom and justice, has written a recent book. It was called A Government of Wolves, The Emerging Police State. He published it in 2013. And he warns the citizenries of the West uh, that we are being conditioned increasingly to accept the usurpation of our liberties by civil government, government and by bureaucrats. This is John Whitehead's argument, and he says this, quote, Americans are finding themselves institutionalized from cradle to grave 
from government-run daycares and public school to nursing homes. In between, they are fed a constant, mind-nubbing diet of pablum, I like that word, consisting of entertainment news, mediocre leadership, and technological gadgetry, which keeps them sated, distracted, and unwilling to challenge the status quo. All the while, in the name of the greater good, and in exchange for the phantom promise of security, the government strips away our rights one by one, monitoring our conversations, chilling our expression, searching our bodies and our possessions, doing away with due process doing away with our due process rights, reversing the burden of proof, and rendering us suspects in a surveillance state. Now, actually, illustrations from uh, this uh, flight from wisdom and from freedom proliferate every single week. I've just been writing about, uh, in the UK, uh, new government proposals. They're called extremism disruption orders which want to give the civil government the right to uh, uh, slap eat what they're calling these EDOs upon people, whether it's, it's uh, because of something they've said in public or written on uh, social media or put on a website, that is deemed to go against British values, to undermine British values. Now, the idea of this is to deal uh, allegedly with Islamic terrorism, they don't want to talk about the problem being fundamentally Islam, of course, but they want to talk about those things that militate against British values. But when you look at what they're saying British values actually are, they have nothing to do with historic British values, but they're tied to the equalities legislation of the country. And that would mean if these extremism disruption orders are passed and they're being discussed this fall in the House, uh, a Christian who says something that's deemed to go against British values in terms of equality could have an EDO slapped on them. If they violate it by speaking or writing, they can be put in prison. If you've been following the news this past week, um, Toronto bureaucrats are banning a Christian band from singing in Toronto, in the Young and Dundas Square, allegedly because singing praise to Jesus is illegal proselytizing in Canada, whilst you've got Islamic festivals, pro-pot marches, pride parades, Hindu celebrations, they're all warmly welcomed, but if you sing a song that has Jesus' name in it, you're illegally proselytizing. And so there is now a civil rights lawyer from Western Canada who has taken up uh, the case of this group. This diet of media pablum, I think, has been very apparent in recent weeks in the elections uh, here in Canada. The English commentator, actually, uh, and a member of the European Parliament, Daniel Hannan, was, commenta was commenting on the recent federal election here, and he said, quote, Justin Trudeau, the new Canadian PM, is a depilated Occupy protester, pro-tax, anti-business, pro-pot, anti-American. Uh, you might add to that pro-stimulus, which means pro-inflation, uh, pro-climate change propaganda, and swept to power in promises of security. That's all I'm going to say about uh, Mr. Trudeau for the time being, lest I get arrested. <laughs> but the, the emerging uh, Canadian dynasty, and it is a bad American habit to develop uh, family dynasties that seems to have uh, now come to Canada is one with a history, in this case, of serial adultery and fornication and pro-Islamic and Marxist sympathizing. 
A dynasty which brought every aspect of the sexual revolution to Canada in the late 60s, opened the floodgates to abortion and all manner of sexual perversions, the destruction of the family, and then gave us a charter that has been used to browbeat Christians ever since. Many Christians are left scratching their heads then and asking what happened to wisdom and virtue in a culture that we used to think of as Christian. Now, wisdom and virtue, let's think about those terms for a moment from a biblical point of view. They used to be characteristics that we looked for and prioritized when we selected religious, political, legislative leaders in the Western world. Whoever they, whatever area of leadership we were concerned with, those two characteristics of wisdom and virtue were things that we looked for. And because of the deep influence of Christianity in the Anglosphere, both competency and character mattered as qualifications for leadership. Those were things that concerned us. And this was because, for the most part, the peoples of the Anglosphere considered uh, themselves wisdom and virtue to be noble aims and core goals in the character development of the, of the young through education, through family life. We would want our children to be raised with wisdom and growing up practicing virtue. The word virtue actually comes from a Latin word which originally meant strength, courage, and moral excellence. Strength, courage, and moral excellence. The words in the biblical languages of Hebrew and Greek translated as virtue mean moral strength, essentially. So the idea was there a prudent and godly use of one's abilities and a general competency. Virtue. Now, wisdom is an, even, uh, is an equally central concern of the Bible. Wisdom in the Greek is sophia, and in biblical terms, it doesn't just mean the accumulation of information. It's not just knowledge. Rather, it encompasses practical knowledge as to how to regulate your relationship with God, first of all. Then it's prudence in dealing with others. It's judiciousness in the handling of circumstances. It's skill or expertise in the application of knowledge to diverse areas of life. That's wisdom in biblical terms. And it's such an important theme that in the book of Proverbs, the very voice of God is personified as wisdom. In uh, Paul's letters, we're told that it's in Christ that are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, Colossians 2, 3. And we're told that wisdom is a blessing, Proverbs 3, 13. It's the foundation of a good life, Proverbs 24, 3. It's the principal thing to seek, to prize, and to treasure, Proverbs 4, 7. And in the New Testament, the Apostle James considers it so important that he urges Christians to pray for it and says that God will willingly give it to you if you ask for it. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. James 1, 5. And this is what I especially want us to note today, is that in Scripture, wisdom isn't given to us for a very limited, narrow area of life, such as uh, our simply our personal life or our family life or for church-related activities, which is where we tend to think as Christians of, well, Lord, give us wisdom in this personal relationship. 
Rather, all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are available in Christ. And in the word of God, we have deposited by the Holy Spirit the foundational principles for life and peace, virtue and excellence in every area of life. One of the best examples of this, of course, is the man who wrote Proverbs. In 1 Kings 10.24, we read about the wisest head of state in the ancient world. The wisest head of state in the ancient world. The noted author of the book of Proverbs, King Solomon, who famously asked God for wisdom above everything else. That was the thing he prayed for. And God gave it to him in spades, you will recall. And the result was that, quoting 1 Kings 10.24, King Solomon surpassed all the kings of the world in riches and wisdom. So he got riches as well. The whole world wanted an audience with Solomon to hear the wisdom that God had put in his heart. In one fascinating incident, the queen of Sheba, probably an Egyptian princess, having heard of Solomon's great wisdom, came to test him with difficult questions. And she came to Solomon, the Bible says, and spoke to him about everything that was on her mind. So Solomon answered all her questions. Nothing was too difficult for the king to explain to her. 1 Kings 10, 2 and 3. Nothing. And so we see in Scripture, if you look at Proverbs and Ecclesiastes and Song of Songs, that what we call, sometimes call the wisdom literature of the Bible, that the wisdom of Solomon was zoological or scientific, economic, political, philosophical, ethical, cultural, marital, familial, romantic, and more. This was a wise man. It wasn't just for a narrow, churchy area of life. As head of state, it was for every aspect of his life. So it's a very serious mistake if we think to limit the wisdom of God to the area of our personal piety, perhaps, as though merely human wisdom is competent for regulating the social order, for, edu- uh, for education, for political pursuits, and other cultural pursuits, and so on. It was actually God who placed wisdom into Solomon's heart so that he was able to rule wisely. In fact, we're actually told in Scripture that it's the wisdom of God himself that governs all things in creation. It's by wisdom the whole world is held together. If that is so, how can we as mere mortals dispense with God's wisdom, even in the building of houses, which Proverbs 24.3 says requires wisdom, let alone the government of human affairs? And so from the biblical perspective, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. Now, the reason I'm emphasizing this is because, of course, there is a contrast coming to wisdom. Wisdom and virtue, then, or what we might call good character, good character, are the most important attributes for leaders to display because they both publicly set the example for others and are entrusted with the responsibility of government in various aspects of life. So as parents, we need wisdom. We need godly character. As teachers, as pastors and leaders, as politicians... Whatever it may be, we need wisdom. But there is, of course, another approach to life. And actually, this approach to life is the one that the Bible always wants to contrast with the way of wisdom. And that's the way of folly. Over against the way of wisdom, human beings in their personal lives, in their social order, 
in their governmental order can pursue the way of folly. And as a result, people will find themselves with leaders who will play the fool for them. And that's the nature of folly. And few worse things can afflict any people than to be led by fools. Now, if you want to understand biblically this idea of folly, we have to see it as the opposite of wisdom. So we're not just pulling out a pejorative term to sort of throw insults around. In Scripture, wisdom is the path of light and life. Folly is the way of death and darkness. So, the fool in the Bible is not an uneducated or illiterate dunce, an ignoramus of some sort. You're not sort of accusing somebody of being an idiot. In fact, the world has an abundance of brilliant, gifted fools. We, we have to affirm that as Christians. Rather, the path of folly is one which rejects or denies the reality of God and so determines to live, work, plan, and govern in a studied ignorance of God. So first of all, the fool nurtures in his heart a desire that there would be no God. Psalm 14, verse 1. But there's a lot more to folly than this. It is the implications that flow from this position that constitute the path of foolishness. Now, I read to you uh, Isaiah 32. It's a very telling passage concerning the coming of righteous and just government. And the prophet Isaiah shows what characterizes the, 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 the fool. And he first of all says it's speech that's not informed by God's wisdom. So that's the first thing. Speech not informed by God's wisdom. Second, there's a mind that plots iniquity. So there's a planning aspect to the fool. That is, that plans against the wisdom of God. There is a lifestyle that is godless. There is a heart that spews out falsehoods about God and ultimate issues, or we might say speaks religious falsehood. And finally, there is an imprudent and self-centered, self-centered outlook that destroys the vulnerable or deprives those in need, leaving people finally impoverished. Those are the markers of the fall. I'll give those to you again in case you were uh, scribbling down notes. It's a, it's a speech not informed by God's wisdom. Second, a mind that plots iniquity. Third, a lifestyle that is godless. Fourth, a heart that spews out religious falsehood. And five, an imprudent, self-centered outlook that leaves people in the end with nothing, impoverished. By contrast, Isaiah talks about the noble person. The noble person plans noble things, and he stands up for noble causes. The result of righteousness will be peace. The effect of righteousness will be quiet confidence forever. There you have the contrast. So, if you forsake the source of all wisdom, which is God, that's to be a fool who not only moves toward ruin in their own life, but then everyone who comes under that person's sway, no matter what their credentials may be, is affected. Because such a person is depending solely on their own ideas, on their own intellectual powers, on their own native strength, and not the wisdom of God. Now this means that in an essentially spiritual world, and I want to emphasize that actually, that, that we live in a spiritual world, 
Because of Greek dualism in people's thinking, a false understanding of the world, when, when we talk about a spiritual world, people immediately start to think about spirits and shades and the invisible things and ghosts and ghouls. Being spiritual is not about occupying an invisible world. A spiritual world means that the world is intimately related in all of its diversity and in every way to God. That's what it means to be a spiritual person. It doesn't mean that you drift around on cloud cuckoo land, in, on, on cloud nine, with the fairies, does it? That, that, that's not being spiritual. Being spiritual means being a person who recognizes their relationship to God and the obligations that flow from it. Because it's a spiritual world, the fool is spiritually blind. And in obstinate rebellion against God, his truth and purpose and ways pursues the way of folly. And the consequence for us, the difficulty for, if I can say, the wise, which again is not a term of um, self-congratulation, as though we are more intelligent than everybody else. The wise are those who submit themselves to God. The difficulty for the wise when dealing with fools is that there is a hostility of fools toward all who represent God's wisdom. Because they are an inconvenient reminder of the fool's rejection of the living God and his truth, which they suppress in unrighteousness, according to Paul in Romans 1. Indeed, for Paul, this deliberate suppression of knowledge is the root cause of what makes a person a fool. That's exactly what Paul says. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. He's not trying to insult the entire Greco-Roman world by saying you're an idiot. He's saying by claiming human wisdom to be above that of God, they became utter fools. And they lived in terms of it. Now, the, the paradigmatic example of the fool in Scripture is drawn actually from a social political circumstance in which a wealthy businessman of bad character manifests his hostility to one of God's wisest servants. This successful man, and I'm hoping some of you biblically literate people here will be trying to work your way through the Bible to discover who this is. This, this successful man, the leader of a large and rich household with many workers, he deliberately, needlessly, and with profound ingratitude insults and causes deep offense to God's servant, the king-designate David, and his military men. And this is in spite of the fact that David had protected and shown favor to the servants of this wealthy man whilst they were exposed and vulnerable in the wilderness, shearing their flocks. When David later sends word seeking a small favor of hospitality, a meal, just a meal for himself and his warriors... His servants are harshly treated. David's actions and status are disgracefully impugned, and they are sent away with nothing but insults. The businessman's name was Nabal. And the fascinating account is found in 1 Samuel 25. Now, why is this the paradigmatic example? Well, Nabal in the Hebrew is the, is the Hebrew word for fool. Fool. And so he was, he was obviously not stupid because he had... He was rich. He obviously knew how to run a business. Didn't mean he was utterly incompetent. 
But his name means fool. Now, fortunately, Nabal had a very wise and prudent wife. And how often this is the case with men today. And she uh, was informed by one of Nabal's servants what had happened to David's men in their encounter with him in this request for hospitality. And she comes to him, she comes to her, sorry, the servant comes to uh, Abigail and says, now consider carefully what you must do because there is certain to be trouble for our master and his entire family. He, that's Nabal, is such a worthless fool. Nobody can talk to him. It's interesting how the Bible doesn't sugarcoat everything, does it? doesn't sort of say, you know, Nabal was a sort of poor, misled, you know, deceived individual. He's a worthless fool. This wise and virtuous woman named Abigail went quickly to the wilderness to meet the king-designate David with gifts, words of wisdom and kindness, asking forgiveness for the insults of her husband because Nabal could only live up to his name, she said. Stupidity is all he knows. That's what Abigail says. 1 Samuel 25, 25. Her actions actually saved Nabal's entire house, preserving them from the sword because David was furious. He was strapping on his sword with his military men to go down there. And he acknowledges that Abigail saved him that day from blood guiltiness. The following morning, Nabal, though, well, actually, that night he has a party And the following morning, he has a seizure, and a few days later, is struck dead by God anyway. God is no buttercup in the Bible. It's interesting, isn't it? This is the the man who is called a fool. He spends his time at a drunken party after this incident. Now, it's important, this incident, because it illustrates the biblical meaning of wisdom over against folly, but it also illustrates for us the application and scope of wisdom. The context for this classic example is not interpersonal relationships in a worshipping community. It's not churchy. There's nothing churchy about this particular illustration. That's not that we don't need wisdom in the church. Absolutely we do. And we need wisdom in our interpersonal relationships in the church. But I'm trying to show that the wisdom, God and government, wisdom goes well beyond my personal piety or the life of the church. The setting is one of social, political significance. It involves matters of culture, custom, diplomacy, and government. For in this account, Nabal, actually for in this account of um, this whole story of Nabal and his dealings with David, the wisdom of a prudent woman who honors God and those who represent him is contrasted with a rich and powerful fool who lives as though God is of no consequence and the cause of the Lord's servants unimportant. Nabal's course was the way of death, and he died. Nabal's course was the way of life. She actually ended up marrying King David. Slightly better choice, I think. Now, what characterized the actions of Nabal is indicative of many leaders today. In ecclesiastical social and political life. What is that? Nabal was a pragmatist. Nabal was a pragmatist. In response to the request of David's diplomatic delegation, here is what Nabal actually says. Who is David? Who is Jesse's son? Many slaves these days are running away from their masters. You'll recall this is when David has left Saul's house. 
Am I supposed to take my bread, my water, my meat that I butchered for my shearers and give it to these men? I don't know where they are from. Now notice that Nabal's pragmatic response manifests nearly all of Isaiah's marks of the fall. First of all, he speaks words uninformed by God's wisdom. That's obvious. Second, his inaction is not just lazy, it's iniquitous based on the context. This is a man whose servants have been under the protection and care of David's men in the wilderness. And now all he's got is insults for him. Third, his life is godless, manifest not only in his attitude towards God's servant David, but in his drunken stupor a few verses later. Fourth, his heart is dismissive of David as though his rhetoric about the king, so that his rhetoric actually about the king designate. Here you've got the anointed of God, the king, the future king of Israel. And you refer to him as though he's an idle slave running away from his master. Not the anointed God-ordained king of Israel being persecuted. And finally, he's depriving those in need, sending them away empty, without even a meal, whilst implying that all his resources are his and from his own hand, not from God and by God's mercy. And so what Nabal is doing is he's actually conducting his affairs without reference to God in such a way that he thinks the world is morally neutral. That he isn't obligated to God. That actually he is going to determine what wisdom and virtue are in this situation What is right and best for Nabal is simply what he perceives to be the best outcome for himself and his own desires. I don't want to get involved in this situation, this slave running away from his master. Why should I butcher any of my meat for this man? He just thinks, well, what's in in it for me? What's in my personal best interest? Pragmatism, then, whether ancient or modern, always replaces uh, replaces wisdom in the governments of fools because... It is a view of life which seeks to establish the meaning of ideas and events only in reference to human experience. Not to God, not to his word, not to his purpose. At best, truth and meaning are relativistic and empirical. That is, Whatever meaning there may be emerges by examining the practical consequences of actions as desirable or undesirable in terms of human preferences. The American philosopher and pragmatist William James, in his book A Pluralist Universe, published in 1909, claimed that meaning must be remade. This is how far this problem goes back, by the way. It's not a new phenomenon. He says, meaning must be remade as we construct new concepts out of our new experiences of the world. We construct new concepts out of our new experiences of the world. What do you think the whole uh, construction of gender and sexuality and marriage and so forth is today, but constructing a new meaning out of people's alleged experiences of the world? Somehow, out of the diversity and cacophony of human experience, meaning is to be remade, presumably by an elite who believe their experience is more defining than everybody else's. I mean, I was doing a debate on the existence of God once against a philosophy professor. professor. He had his PhD from Princeton, as I recall, Ronald D'Souza. 
And I kept challenging him throughout the debates in two different universities on his basis of truth and meaning. And in the end, all he could, all he could say, in, his, in absolute frustration about being pressed to this point about what his basis of truth and meaning was, he got up and said to the crowd, experience. Experience. That's my basis of truth and meaning. Which was an absolute gift for me because I got up and said, whose experience? Yours? Mine? Hers? His? You see, at best, truth and meaning here are rendered relativistic and empirical. In such a view, the world and all human action is ethically neutral, but might be improved or progressed as man, by his instrumental ideas, adjusts life. The significance of the, um, the UN promo video that's being shown everywhere is we have a plan. Is it God's plan? Does it have anything to do with God's word? Virtue and wisdom as God defines it. Or is it a plan of fools to impose equality upon the world as man defines it? In this perspective, the ethical or virtuous life is simply the adjustment or manipulation of human behavior towards more satisfying ways of living. That is satisfying for an elite. The fool then is quite obviously sinful, fallen man who lives as though there is no God and cherishes an astonishing presumption that by his own wisdom he can save himself and society. The fool will not admit his need of God, and the more foolish people become in obstinate rebellion, the more they will seek the leadership and government of fools. Although this is a remarkable characteristic of the modern West, it isn't unique to our time. One of my favorite heads of state along with somebody like Abraham Kuyper, was Oliver Cromwell, much maligned, falsely maligned in many history texts today. And the government which he represented was unpopular eventually with many, not because of its alleged authoritarian nature. This was a context in which the king whom they deposed, Charles I, claimed absolute power, that he was above the law. Cromwell and the Puritans were champions of freedom, of liberty, of freedom of conscience. It wasn't the alleged authoritarian nature of his government that made it unpopular. It was because of the moral character it represented. As one historian has noted, John Stephen Flynn, in The Influence of Puritanism on the Political and Religious Thought of the English, he says, for the first and only time in modern Europe, Morality and religion became the sole qualification insisted on by the court. In the whole history of modern Europe, Oliver is the one ruler into whose presence no vicious man could come, whose service no vicious man might enter. In the Puritans, we actually see a resistance to this mere pragmatic approach to leadership. And as we are thinking about government today, most of you will have in mind... I suspect, federal, provincial, municipal government. But that is not what the Bible means by government. It's, it's a small part of what the Bible means by government. The Bible by government means the self-government of the Christian person. The government of 
the family. The church is a government. Church discipline is exercised by a church because the church is a form of government. The guilds or the vocations have their own disciplinary ability. They're forms of government. Colleges of physicians, for example. Bar associations for lawyers. These are forms of government. The state is civil government or a ministry of justice. In the Puritans, then, we saw this in what we might call evangelical government. government. We saw a resistance to a mere pragmatic approach to leadership in the church, in the family, in the state, with a government conducted in terms of moral courage or virtue and transcendent principle, seeking the wisdom of God for society and culture. Now, we don't have to go all the way back to Oliver Cromwell, I might say, to talk about uh, politicians who have shown an awareness of the difference between Christian wisdom in thinking about government and mere pragmatic approaches in terms of the will of the people or the mob or an elite. In an address to the General Assembly of the Church of Scotland, former British Prime Minister, the late Lady Thatcher, said this, and I quote, When Abraham Lincoln spoke in his famous Gettysburg speech of 1863 of government of the people, He gave the world a neat definition of democracy, which has since been widely and enthusiastically adopted. But what he enunciated as a form of government was not in itself especially Christian, for nowhere in the Bible is the word democracy mentioned. Ideally, when Christians meet as Christians to take counsel together, their purpose is not or should not be to ascertain what is the mind of the majority, but what is the mind of the Holy Spirit? something which may be quite different. Quite a remarkable statement. If wisdom is identified then simply with the voice of the majority, all we have left is collective pragmatism. Collective pragmatism within a humanistic framework that declares the voice of the people to be the voice of God. The word democracy comes from two Greek words, demos kratos, meaning people, power. Whilst we can see important instances and texts in the Bible that actually support the importance of freedom under God, I won't read them all to you, but if you want some of them, Exodus 6, 2 through 8, John 8, 31 through 32, Galatians 5, 1. The consent of the people to be governed, we see that in 1 Samuel 8, 1 Corinthians 6, 1 through 5, Acts 15, 22. And to be represented from among those being governed, Exodus 18, 13 through 27, Titus 1, 5 through 9. Just because there is representation or there is a vote in itself, that doesn't save people from their folly or their sin. Nor can it preserve freedom and keep people from self-destruction. Think about this for a moment. 1 Samuel 8. We have the, the setting where the people of Israel demand a king. It's the people who demand a king. It's not imposed on them. They come out of the period of the judges. They demand, the people demand a king, and the prophet Samuel is very dejected because he knew that this was a surrender of freedom under God. He knew it. And God told him anyway, he said, look, Samuel, I know you're upset about this, but it's not you they've rejected, it's me. He said, let them have their king, 
but warn them of the growing and invasive powers a king will wield over them. And he talked, Samuel told them about all the powers that that kind of a state would invoke over them. In the matters of wisdom and virtue, then, the will of the people is only as good as the character of the people making their voice heard. So we Christians must be careful not to collapse the idea of democracy and representation into the idea of uh, as, as somehow synonymous with wisdom and virtue. They're not synonymous. Even Winston Churchill called democratic government the best of a bad lot of choices. The collective decision of the Israelites to have a king appointed was a product of the character of those people. They wanted to be like all the other nations. And they found the responsibility of freedom under God too much to bear. They didn't want it. They preferred a form of slavery to freedom. And so in terms of the character of leaders in every sphere, we get the kind of rulers we deserve. Because the character of the people will determine the character of the leaders that govern. So Canada today has exactly what it deserves and more. Whilst it is true that Abraham Lincoln's quote has been used in support of democratic systems and institutions, what Margaret Thatcher didn't mention in her excellent speech was that these words are not original to Abraham Lincoln. He actually, Abraham Lincoln in that famous Gettysburg address, was actually quoting from the prologue of the earliest translation of the Bible into English. This Bible, this is the original quote, this Bible is for the government of the people, for the people, and by the people. These words were penned by the morning star of the Reformation, the English theologian John Wycliffe. And they first appeared in 1384. Lincoln was quoting them. Wycliffe understood that true wisdom and virtue for the government of our lives came not from kings and parliaments or popes in themselves, but from God's word. He didn't see the Bible as a privatized book, restricted to a Christian's personal devotional life or to the church institution. Rather, he saw scripture as God's law word and wisdom for all of life, And that without this book for the government of the people, wisdom and virtue would vanish and liberty and godly government would die with them. The book came before the people, not the people before the book. To put the preferences of the people before the word of God as the source of meaning of wisdom and virtue is the steady destruction of true and just government. And the Canadian Senate understood that in the late 19th and early 20th century. That's what the Lord's Day Bill was all about. If you look at the debates that took place in the Senate. Wycliffe's work produced a community of the, I think they were called the Lollards, if I recall correctly, off the top of my head. And the Reformation was then able, when it took place in Europe, to take root very quickly in England. And it birthed political freedom is because this was the idea of it. Christian view, then, does not allow pragmatic concerns to trump God's wisdom or moral character, a pragmatism which all too many Christians today are prepared to accept and go along with. The obvious challenge, however, to us is that, in an, un- that, is that an ungodly people do not want a moral universe. I was speaking out in um, 
Western Canada recently to a, a group of Lutheran pastors. And after a few days of speaking to them about the issues of Christ and culture, I was just leaving the building, and uh, one of the pastors who was chatting with a group of others said to me, um, uh, if you were on the ballot, in the ballot box tomorrow, I'd vote for you. But the reality of the situation is, if right now, if my name had been in the ballot box, or your name had been in the ballot box as a faithful Christian, would you have been elected? Would anybody have been elected? I doubt it. Now, that's not an argument for disengagement with politics. I'm just stating a fact that our challenge is an ungodly people do not want a moral universe, virtuous, wise leaders, and wise government. The modern Westerner is a pragmatist. They're products of progressivist education where the only test of value is pragmatic. Is this action personally or socially conducive to my own welfare or the social welfare as man in terms of what of man in terms of what we think well-being actually looks like? What do I get out of it? In approaching things this way, we fail to acknowledge that when in rebellion against God, man is not just a sinner, he's rendered a fool. And when acting on the principles of folly, we actually condemn our society to a slow cultural death. We already stand the risk of having potheads in the workplace and everywhere in the street and in the schools because of the desire to legalize marijuana. Now, in many respects, you know, if this was a Christian culture... I wouldn't have laws against marijuana because no moral person is stupid enough to rot their brain. The Christian view, then, isn't pragmatic. The modern Westerner, though, is. From Nabal right through to Nietzsche, pragmatism governs the fall. For Nietzsche, the solution to what he called the European problem was the rearing quote of a new ruling caste for Europe. The rearing of a new ruling caste for Europe. The way to govern and save humanity was by unleashing the new wisdom of man living beyond good and evil, that is transcending God's law, in a purely pragmatic universe where truth is simply will to power. And that's the quintessence of pragmatism. Nietzsche was a pragmatist, pure and simple, and his politics have dominated the West. Nietzsche held, quote, the real philosophers, however, are commanders and lawgivers. They say, thus shall it be, their will to truth is will to power. And so George Bernard Shaw put it this way, the art of government is the organization of idolatry. The art of government is the organization of idolatry. Man is the new God, and that is the current temper today. The growing statism and elitism of the modern Western world simply manifests that we inhabit today a large humanistic theocracy. It is a theocracy. 
the humanistic one, governed by the will of man as a replacement for divine wisdom and true virtue. And because of this reality, governments of fools will praise the wicked. When the people abandon the wisdom of God and replace it with pragmatism, when the Bible for the government of the people is rejected, instead of battling evil and seeking to suppress it, governments will praise, endorse, and celebrate it. And they will fight against the true and the good. Scripture is clear about that. I quote Proverbs 29:18, Where there is no prophetic vision, the people cast off restraint, but blessed is he who keeps the law. Where biblical truth disappears in public life, restraint goes to the wind. So Solomon says in Proverbs 28:4, Those who forsake the law praise the wicked. And that's what's happening. Quite obviously, this is the situation we're facing. Government in scripture and in Christian history is not simply civil government. It includes this self-government of the Christian person, the family, the church, the vocations. State is to be a ministry of justice and all are either worked out in terms of principles of wisdom or they'll be dominated by folly. So let me close by asking this question. It'll take me about seven or eight minutes to close with this question. How do the wise engage a world, a world system dominated by foolishness? How do we do that? Well, regenerate consciousness and the Christian office, I think, are the answer. A regenerate consciousness and the Christian office. First thing we have to do, and I'm hoping that... um, Andre will flesh some of these things out in his session as he talks about our current circumstance and prudence and wisdom in how we engage. The first thing we have to do is recognize that Jesus Christ is Lord over all government, all authority, and all power. Nothing is more crystal clear in Scripture than that he is Lord of all. Abraham Kuyper famously put it this way. He says, there is not one square inch in the entire universe of which Christ cannot say, this is mine. This is mine. This means that there is an antithesis between wisdom and folly. That's what the Bible sets up. The reason I've put it that way to you today, by the way, is because I think sometimes if somebody like me talks about an antithesis, we start thinking philosophy, we start thinking you know, apologetics, we start thinking in abstractions. But the Bible's interest is in seeing the, the antithesis of how that plays out, wisdom and folly. That's practical, not merely abstract. Wisdom recognizes Christ's identity and lives in terms of it. Folly rejects Christ's office and lives the pragmatic life. The regenerate believer with a Christ-centered consciousness and the unregenerate rebel may well be able to work together in building wells in Nigeria, but their ultimate ends and aims and motives and cause are altogether different. So that although God takes delight in all the works of his hands, the unrepentant does not, in the final analysis, do that which is morally pleasing to God. Now, I don't say that on my own authority. Hear what Paul the Apostle says in Romans 8. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. Now, again, remember that when he talks about flesh and spirit, he's not talking about Greek dualism. He's talking about a mindset that's carnal, worldly, or a mindset that is under God. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. 
For to the mind set on the for the mind for to the mind for to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. That's simple enough. That is not to say that the non-regenerate rebel can never exhibit a wise decision, build a good bridge, or manifest a virtue. That is because God's goodness and providence within creation and his work within history to bring all things to his desired end means that finally man is not autonomous. In fact, scripture says in Proverbs 16:4, the Lord has prepared everything for his purpose, even the wicked for the day of disaster. The Lord has prepared everything for his purpose, even the wicked for the day of disaster. What then is the basis of our engagement with culture, with leaders and with government? Now, some have suggested that the basis for our participation, our participation with culture is our shared humanity with the rest of the world and a common grace that means we share certain objectives. Now, there is a certain sense there's a, in which we can say there's certain truth to that. We know what people generally mean when they're talking about common grace. The difficulty with this, though, is first that the Bible never speaks of grace, but rather goodness, patience, and forbearance with respect to creation and humanity in general. It doesn't talk about grace with respect to the non-elect. It's a very interesting point. John Frame notes, he says, can I quote, Scripture never uses Shen or Sharis to refer to his blessings on creation generally or on non-elect humanity. So it would perhaps be better to speak of God's common goodness or common love rather than his common grace. I think John Frame is right there. In Scripture, grace is covenantal. And the non-believer is outside of the covenant and therefore is not a recipient of grace proper. Now, God makes his sun to shine on the just and the unjust. And because of God's purposes in history, and because we are all made in his image, we see people do things who are not believers that exhibit virtue or manifest wisdom. But what is common to man in the Bible is not grace. What's common to us is the curse. There's a common curse. To base our engagement then with culture on the idea of common grace, and I often hear this, by the way, when I'm, I did a debate recently in England with a, um, a, a leader of a very large evangelical denomination. I was debating him in London on Christ and culture, and he gets up after I've talked about the lordship of Christ and engagement with culture in terms of the wisdom of God. He gets up and talks about, well, we need to cooperate with you know, uh, these people and those people and this and that and common grace principles in an effort to say that there's this vast neutral realm in which we all share this common understanding and we can just engage there. We can participate, I should say, there. But to base our, the, our engagement with culture on the idea of common grace presumes that the cultural task is something that begins after the fall. And it's something that man, sinful man does, 
and that Christians have this privilege of participating in it with them so long as they're not being specifically sinful. Because, of course, you don't need grace until after the fall, do you? We speak of common grace. When people talk about common grace, theologians talk about it. They mean this kind of general uh, grace that God's exhibiting by uh, generally after man's fall into sin. But that's not actually what Scripture tells us. Rather, we are told that Adam is given a cultural mandate in Genesis 1, 26 through 28. And it's on this basis that we develop the cultural task and subdue creation. We bring order out of disorder like God, as his image bearers, who took that formless emptiness and shaped it and brought order from the cacophony and planted a garden. It's on this basis that we develop the cultural task and bring order then out of disorder. A life of wise engagement with culture is not one that develops out of our natural association with fallen man. We say, well, they're doing this, so let's just participate in that. But rather, it's the product of God's command to go and bring God's order out of sin's disordering. And that's after the fall there. So we have a cultural mandate before the fall, but the cultural mandate is restated after the fall, even though sin is now disordering the creation. Culture, then, I want to say to you, is not the residual of the fall. That's just permitted by God. That's not really primarily the Christians calling, you know, our calling is to do evangelism, tell people about Jesus, get them to go to heaven. As though that's the end of the Christian calling. As though culture is not the Christian calling. Rather, we orient our lives as people around this mandate. The call doesn't originate to build culture then in the lives of unregenerate people. This would leave us with an impoverished view of culture where, as Klaus Schilder has put it, another Dutch theologian, he says where, where this would leave us, he says, is, there is where there is no higher task for the Christian than timidly to eat under the table the crumbs which fall from the table of unbelieving culture builders. In fact, fallen man in one sense, due to his rebellion, seeks to bring disorder to God's order. So when you think about the non-believers culture building, in one sense, like we see right now what's going on, let's take the most obvious example, the destruction and reorienting of the family and human gender. That is trying to disorder God's order. In that sense, that's the work of unculture, which isn't a word, but I'm using it. Unculture. The Bible uses the term actually world system, not culture, for fallen man's approach to culture building. For his system is one grounded in folly, not God's wisdom. In that system, the Christian doesn't participate then in a moral sense. We, we don't participate in the world system. Rather, we minister into it. John 17, 18 through 19 makes that clear. We are in the world, but we're not of it. Culture is therefore a mixed bag when you look at it, especially when you look at it in the West today, because it's so, it still bears all the remnants of the Christian world and life view. It manifests both a Christian and a non-Christian influence. And as a result, we're not here to beg for a place at the table on our knees, cowering for bread under the secularist table. Rather, we seek to wisely and faithfully work and witness to the truth that Christ is head of all rule 
and all authority and to fulfill our cultural mandate. Think about it. After the fall, the first couple were recommissioned with that cultural mandate. All of us failed in the task, though. All humanity failed in it. Even Israel called out to be God's prince, prince with God, God's servant, God's son, God's obedient one, failed in the task until the coming of Jesus Christ, the second Adam, the head of all rule and authority. And in him, the office bearer, prophet, priest, and king. We are actually restored to God's image and are called to rule with Christ in creation, turning his creation into a God-glorifying culture. Here, culture is not a neutral activity that comes out of a post-fallen world. It's the product of a living faith, and that's the difference. We're not just participants in a neutral world trying to um, uh, just season it a little bit. Rather, we act with a living faith which doesn't bypass the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. And our governments, our cultures, manifest their spiritual shortfall or deficit, which makes fallen man unable to fulfill his cultural responsibilities adequately. Every time he moves away from the gospel, he starts to spoil it. He starts to ruin it. As he moves away from the principles of God's word, he starts to destroy even what has been made. He needs a regenerated mind and heart. Without this vital change, we remain cultural pygmies or we reduce a once great culture and shrink it down till we destroy it. I often say to people, people are horrified when they look at a country like Pakistan, what happens on the ground there, what happens in people's lives. And you see the poverty and the corruption and the mess and so on that people live in. And then I say to them, well, what do you think is going to happen if you simply transplant 150,000 or 200,000 Muslims into Bradford in England in a ghetto and you build mosques and Islamic schools and you provide Sharia tribunals? What do you think Bradford is going to become? If there is no regeneration of the heart, if the principles of God's word are not applied... Do you think justice and righteousness and peace will endure? You know why the British government is running around trying to develop extremism disruption orders? It's because it cannot cope with all the homegrown terror. All the honor killings. All the abuse of women that is taking place now in Britain. People are changed ultimately. The cultural deficit is only changed when people are regenerate and then the principles of God's word are applied. In short, we are called to be salt and light. We engage the culture in terms of obedience to God's command and we do so with wisdom and with virtue in Christ-like boldness and humility. And it's God's patience with sinful man that enables us to see the antithesis of wisdom and folly. If God wasn't patient with sinners, we wouldn't see the difference, would we? But that patience enables us to see the difference and at the same time motivates us to work with non-believers in the historical development of civilization whilst maintaining our cultural work in terms of the commands of God, trusting God for his kingdom to come. So Adam was given an office as God's co-worker, which was to govern his actions and relationships. 
And he was to dress the garden and turn creation into a culture by godly government and rule. And Christ comes now as the divine office holder. He fulfills that which our first parents failed to do. And now he calls us to represent his interests in the earth. Renewed by the Holy Spirit, we are soldiers of culture working in terms of God's commandment and promise of the renewal of all creation. Walking in wisdom, in the end, engaging culture is an act of worship. Engaging the wisdom of God in all areas of government is an act of worship because we are assured in Scripture the government will be upon his shoulders. And of the increase of his government and of his peace, there will be no end. Stephen.